people just like you have taken the brave step to do this thing we call work differently. They tell their self-unlimited story to inspire and encourage you. Another story begins now. Today I'm speaking with Eric. Eric, thank you so much for participating in this conversation. Uh, thank you for having me, Helen. Eric Chen, I met a few months ago and he had this fascinating story about how he's been traveling in his workscape. And Eric, I'm going to give no more introduction than that and invite you to share with us your story. Uh, thank you, Helen. Yes, uh, we met like only three months ago, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed, indeed. But, you know, we've been getting on like a house on fire. That's right, that's right. Um, I heard about what you're doing with the Self Unlimited podcast and thank you for inviting me to share my story. My pleasure, because um, it's a fascinating one. Yeah, I think my story appeals to quite a wide audience because it's a story about always changing the frame of reference of um, my personal belief systems, what I'm capable of, and also what uh, structure and environment that was placed upon me and what I did to get over it. And my story sort of begins back all the way uh, in high school where my parents are traditional Chinese. And I don't know about you, but uh, Chinese cultures, and I don't know about your own personal culture, but Chinese culture, they're quite strict with uh, your pathway forward into the educational and professional space. Right. Yeah, in fact, um, I did in high school what they call the Asian Fab Five. Have you heard of that before? No, I haven't. Do tell. Yeah, so the Asian Fab Five are the core five subjects that all, nearly all Asian kids do, which is right. um, specialist mathematics, maths methods, uh, physics, chem, you know, like all those science or business-based uh, subjects. Right, because, right. Yeah. You made reference to my cultural background. I'll just insert a little bit of a thought here. It's Kiwi, but because I'm a couple of genera well, a couple of decades older than you, you'd probably be bemused to know that while there were some sort of subjects that I was taking, the path to me was more home economics and typing and things like that. So there was definitely a, sense uh, of a set of subjects with a path that might be going on, but very different than the one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I see from what you shared, that was very uh, time period appropriate, wasn't indeed, it? Indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I did that, those Asian Fat Fives and my um, family had lined up for me the expected trajectory of any Asian child, which was you're either going to be some sort of medical professional, like mm -hmm. a doctor or a specialist, some sort of uh, law or corporate professional, and some sort of business owner. Those were the um, three things that they set expectations around. And not small business owner, but like getting to those C-level, senior exec level type I'm of- I'm seeing uh, you in a suit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. The suit was the expectation. Right. But the funny thing about me is that because my parents got divorced when I was quite young and I lived mainly with my mum and, you know, we weren't very wealthy growing up. So my mum worked quite a number of jobs and I spent a lot of time uh, in- after school care and basically uh, entertaining myself, I got exposed to a lot of Australian culture through right. television, radio, through television, radio. And one of the things that uh, really stood out to me was how different my family experience was compared to what I saw in TV shows like the Brady Bunch. Right. You know, so Asians, Asian families rarely hug and they don't show much emotion. Uh, hopefully that's changed now. And I'm definitely changing that trajectory for my own family. But in the past, it was very stereotypical like that. But because I adopted a lot of the Australian culture, I started to think very differently uh, from my Asian peers. Right. Whose families were very strict with the traditional um, thinking. 
So after high school, I got into university doing a finance degree of some sort. Uh, I remember it was like some sort of double degree. And after a year and a half, I completely hated it. Right. I yeah, I, I hated it. I remember sitting in accounting and uh, what was I studying? Supply and demand. And I was like, nah, this is not for me. I just can't, I just can't deal with this. Because I was the sort of kid that had uh, a bit more of a uh, emotional and creative side, whereas yes. that's not nurtured in the Asian culture unless right. you're a complete standout. I'm sure there are accountants out there who think they're creative, but I get your point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not to be rude to any of the accountants there, but maybe just a uh, natural inclination. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So funny enough, uh, one of the biggest lessons that I was able to uh, reveal to myself the epiphanies that I had was the day that I actually uh, went up to my mum and my dad and told them that I wanted to quit university. Wow. And yeah. So you can imagine how that would have uh, played out with yes. a very traditional Asian family, right? So <laughs> my mum actually cried a little, which was a little bit sad. <laughs> I could imagine it probably felt like you were abandoning everything that they thought was valuable. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think a lot of people, especially young people, have to deal with that uh, once they reach the 18-year-old uh, age group and they uh, move into adulthood, that they need to break free of the expectations set on them uh, by their loved ones, uh, yeah. primarily their parents. And I was fortunate to be given this opportunity due to my desire to change my own uh, trajectory in life. Mm. And when I told them that I was quitting university, my mum cried, my dad was a, a little bit disappointed, but he was still supportive. Yes. Uh, but he encouraged me to go get a job. And I actually worked two and a half years as a poker dealer at Crown Casino. Fascinating. So there's a bit of a financial, you know, accounting uh, numbers aspect there. Yeah, so dealing poker, there is a lot of mental arithmetic, especially when you're trying to calculate the size of the pot and the bets and what's meant to come next and all that sort of thing. Um, there's definitely that element to it. And I did thrive in that particular environment because that was during the time when poker had exploded on the mainstream, right. especially after an Australian had won the, uh, Oz, uh, the World Series. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that was a really big thing. But what was um, very important about working at Crown Casino was it exposed me to a context outside of the boundaries of Melbourne. Okay. Yeah. And as a young person coming from a poor family, I didn't really travel anywhere besides uh, one time to Hong Kong to visit my family. Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't well-traveled and well-experienced, worldly experienced, working in a place like Crown Casino showed me what the world was really truly made of in terms of its diversity. Indeed, I imagine they'd see a lot of people from an international point of view and a lot of variability from socio-economic point of view. The socio-economic point of view is probably the most uh, stark because mm -hmm. I realised after working at Crown Casino that there are rich people, there are really rich people, and then there are ridiculous, crazy rich people. Right. Like you wouldn't believe, yeah. Um, there's definitely levels to the game. I, I once saw someone bet uh, half a million dollars on red on roulette, lost that, bet another half a million on black, lost that, and then walked away like it was nothing. Wow, that's a different reality. <laughs> yes, yeah, and I think that is so important. That's, that's something that um, all young people should do, that they should uh, make sure that they invest in 
traveling, in meeting new people, and exposing themselves to different contexts and realities. It's so uh, yeah, you say that because for me, when I was 19, I left New Zealand and went and spent three months in Thailand. And I look back and see that as really quite pivotal and that it was such a different, different reality, culturally, physically, socially, economically, that it was such a, um, a redefining moment in my life. So I'm fully supportive of that same idea. Yeah, go out in the world and have a very, expose yourself to very different realities. Yeah, it's very different realities. And I know that the common trap for young people is that they go overseas and travel, but what they do is they end up just partying. And yeah, they it's actually the holiday experience rather than the lived experience. That's, that's what to right. me, Thailand was a three-month experience and I was not there in a holiday. I was actually there doing volunteer work. That's right, that's right. Like they, when you go to a bar in one country, how many bars can you visit this, when the bars just become the same? Indeed. You know, when you, yeah, when you go to another music festival and even seeing the tourist sites, right? But if you really envelop yourself in any sort of culture or subculture, you know, mm -hmm. even the subcultures, and I think the casino world, the gambling world was a little bit of a subculture within itself. Yes. And I think that um, revealed so many distinctions and learnings and exposed me to so many different people in different circumstances. So, yeah, that's very important to, to think about when you're trying to, uh, discover a bit of your own identity. Mm. So what happened was, after the world of poker and casinos? So I left poker because I realised it was a soul-sucking job and even though I'm not responsible for taking people's money into my own pocket, I was mm. um, perpetrating this horrible thing called gambling addiction. And, and I realised that uh, into the journey. So I left uh, Crown Casino and I actually went back to school. And one of the pivotal reasons of why I went back to school was I read this book called The Icarus Deception mm -hmm. by Seth Godin. And Seth Godin is uh, quite a famous author of uh, Purple Cow and, and a multitude of other marketing and business type books. I'm a fan of his books. Yeah, yeah, he's great, isn't he? Yes. And um, in The Icarus Deception, probably one of his uh, lesser known um, books, it was actually a book about creativity. And one of the things that held me back a lot in my life was that I understood myself to be I'm creative in the sense that I could think freely and strategically and I can come up with new ideas and new thoughts, but I always bound creativity to the traditional creative arts. Okay. Creativity, like drawing, like fine arts and dancing and singing and, and um, painting. You know, I always tied creativity to be uh, legitimate when it's tied into some sort of expression in that particular context. Mm, mm. So I viewed myself as not actually a very creative person. And when I read that book, the book shared a lot of lessons about reframing your understanding about creativity that, um, and also the important lesson of uh, Icarus where his father Daedalus told him not to fly too close to the sun. And that's the most well-known part of the story where you fly too high, uh, you know, you become too arrogant, beware of tall poppy and then you can get burnt. And he was saying how that particular idea of tall poppy syndrome and being worried about um, pushing the limits can be very detrimental. Mm -hmm. And that's what people mainly took away from um, both stories, the Seth Godin book and also the um, Icarus story. But what people often forget about the original Icarus story is Daedalus tells him to beware of flying too low uh, close to the water as the seawater will also melt the wax and cause his wings to deteriorate and cause right. him crashing to his death as well. And people often forget that. And I found myself really resonating with that part is because 
I did feel about that tall poppy, but I didn't connect much with that principle because I felt that I had no creative art. So if right. I was somebody who was a creative artist, maybe I'll think, oh yeah, I'm not worthy of being Picasso level or having people um, pay money for my art. I didn't believe I had any art at all. But the flip side of the metaphor was, I didn't believe that I had any ability of creativity and that I only thought of creativity in one way. But that book taught me that creativity is one way to frame it. But when you think about any time you try to create something new or come up with a new innovation, that's actually creativity within itself. Indeed, indeed. So what I'm hearing from that is there might have been a sense of don't aim for the big stuff, but if you couldn't aim for the big stuff, don't try at all. Whereas the, uh, flying too low to the water is kind of like, well, that's kind of not trying at all. So find some other happy medium, maybe. Yeah, and also maybe challenge your belief system around um, what you believe to be true about mm. your ability. That, that was probably a big thing for me is that uh, I needed to challenge my thought processes around what it meant to be creative. And I found that perhaps maybe I'm not creative in the traditional sense, but I am actually a very innovative person. So a theme that I've heard you say a couple of times now, that's something about that notion of tradition and traditional sense, whereas I think sometimes we can feel that gives us a great stability or a base. It can hold us back because it limits our thinking and that you've done a few things to reframe and get a new perspective on things. Yeah, that's right. The reframing is such an essential tool. I would say that because uh, uh, by trade, I develop presentation skills and presentations for corporates and business professionals. Yes. And one of um, the most important principles that I need any of my clients to understand is this idea of reference dependence and contextual framing. That right. If you understand um, the framing of any argument, of any presentation, of any idea, all the way to the framing that is presented, the frame of reference that's presented from your body language and from the tone and the word selections you use in your presentation, then you actually are able to um, have an element of control about the experience. Brilliant. And then and, and, um, while we didn't intend this, and the listeners might not necessarily believe me, for me, self-unlimited itself is all about reframing the notion of work and offering people the opportunity to say, what you've thought about work probably comes from a very traditional point of view. And both for where we are now in 2019, but where we're going as a society, work is going to shift whether we want to or not. So why not get ourselves the opportunity to reframe it in a way that we'd like to see it? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think understanding reframing is also about uh, accepting that you have a choice in the matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you had this choice, you went back to school and then what happened? Yeah, so I went back to school, all was good, studying psychology, got to the very last year of my degree, uh, weeks before final exams. And my girlfriend of five years tell me, tells me that she's pregnant. Right. Yeah, so talk about reframing your life. <laughs> Indeed, and having a different reality. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And, and I, I um, have no qualms about sharing this. I was a, a pretty wild person in university. I was fortunate that I was intelligent and I was um, fairly responsible with my studies, but I also had a bit of a, a, a party streak here, if you will, uh, during my time. So I wasn't exactly the best candidate to become a father. Right. Uh, <laughs> However, it's a major reframing. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But the skills and the knowledge that I developed from 
um, personal development and reading a lot of books, reading books like Seth Godin's books. Another really influential book for me was um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Right. And in fact, um, that concept or principle that we spoke about before uh, regarding understanding that you have a choice in any situation. Uh, that idea, that principle was actually born from um, that book for me, Man's Search for Meaning. And in fact, um, one of the really famous business books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by mm. Stephen Covey. Yes. Uh, have you read that book before? Yes, I have. It's a good book. And I, I like you, some of the principles in that too. Yeah. So one of the principles is about how between stimulus, something that happens to you and your response, that gap where you can make a choice is your only true freedom. He got that from the Man's Search for Meaning book by Victor. Right, Frank. right. Because it resonates very quite strongly with me with the different work that I do that I might not be able to control the circumstances around me. I can control my response to them and the choice, the way I choose to see it and therefore the way I choose to navigate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I highly encourage anyone to uh, get that book and have a read and perhaps even get it on audiobook because Viktor Frankl narrates it himself. Yes. And he does have a bit of a soft uh, German accent. However, once you get used to it, you hear him tell his story. And his story in the simplest two lines is that he was a Jewish psychiatrist that lived through the concentration camps. And he analyzed what was happening around him to himself and the psychology of the different people in the different circumstances. Some who betrayed their own people, some who flourished, some who committed suicide, some who checked out completely. He analyzed it from a well-trained psychiatrist's point of view. And he puts all those thoughts into the book, which resulted in that um, final outcome of, you know, between stimulus and response, there is true freedom. It's very much that thinking that informed why I created Self Unlimited and some of the spirit and vibe in Self Unlimited because I think from a work point of view, not at all to say is any way comparative to concentration camps. It's a, mm -hmm. a horrendous thing that happened in our human history. But for a lot of people, the sense of work can be a place where it is debilitating or taking something away from them or they're almost feeling like they're in a slave-master relationship. And so for me, it was very much about the notion of liberation and how could you liberate yourself when it might not be about liberating physically the space in which you were in. It became more a liberation of the mind and a liberation of the spirit. And it's um, so poignant that you mentioned that because that was exactly my experience when I moved into the professional world. Uh, I mentioned, I think I mentioned earlier that I was working traditionally in um, medical research. I mentioned to you before the podcast. Yes. Uh, that's where I moved into. into so from psychology to medical research. Yeah, well, the medical research job that I worked in, um, I specialised in dementia, which is okay. uh, drawing from my psychological background. And while I was at uni, I worked with kids with um, autism and all that as well. And I was working at the Alfred Hospital and Monash University uh, with the Esprit study, which was aspirin in reducing events in the elderly. Mm -hmm. And I really loved that job. Um, I excelled at it. I became uh, responsible for growing the dementia department uh, from its infancy to to um, being a well-run department collecting data around Alzheimer's cases and dementia cases. Something to and be very much like a creative act. Yeah, right, right. But it took me a very long time to, to see that that was true creativity in itself. And, and I'm glad that you, you made that point because I think that if your listeners do take that away, really challenge what you believe to be true about yourself and about mm. your skills and your talents, uh, it will make such a world of difference. And sometimes you won't be able to do it alone. 
But if you find the right mentor or objective third party that really knows you and sees you for who you are, you, you might be very interested just to hear them say or answer the question, what do you think my talent is? And indeed, and it's interesting, I have a slightly similar story in that people I asked when I was in my early 20s, what did you think I would be when I grew up? And I, overheard, I heard people say many times, oh, Helen, I thought you'd be a teacher. So I explored, you know, primary school teaching, secondary teaching, early childhood, university, and none of that was a fit for me. So I thought, well, we must have all got it wrong. The universe got it wrong. These people who knew me growing up got it wrong. I've got it wrong. And what I came to realize is while I might have a teaching gift, it didn't fit in the normal traditional form of what we thought as teachers. So I'm resonating really strongly with the notion of what you're saying because I really had to think, well, what is it that's maybe the teaching gift completely separate from how it might have been traditionally expressed? And that's what I'm hearing from you. While there may be a creativity gift, it's not expressed in the normal way that people might think from an art or an aesthetics point of view it's about seeing something that might not exist and bringing it to reality which is of course what an artist does but you are seeing something that might not exist in terms of an organizational form and bringing that to reality and that's that's exactly right that's that's so true and i've seen you in action your facilitation your education and you do express the the gift or the talent of education through like you said the non-traditional means that you're not in a high school or primary school or a lecture hall, mm. uh, but you're teaching and educating, I should say, in uh, so many different ways. But yeah. it took a while for me to find that and to own that. So I think um, my uh, comment to people listening to this is very much listen to your heart. And if you feel that there is something that you have to express, find new language or find groups of people who may allow you to express it without needing to put language over it about how it does or doesn't fit in a traditional form. Yeah, I love that. The new language parts about discovering the new words to describe it is just uh, really, yeah, that's an amazing tip. I think that's uh, an essential cornerstone to achieving what we're talking about here. Um, so, uh, as I was saying regarding my stories that I went into medical research and I experienced exactly what you described about that feeling of uh, being trapped and feeling a bit burnt out from the job that I was in. I really loved it. I was impacting uh, millions of people because it was the largest research study uh, to date uh, in Australia. And I still had those moments where I felt like I was clock watching every single day every single day. And this leads into the part of my story, I think, which really sparked your interest when we first met and I shared with you a little bit about myself, mm. was that I was in medical research, uh, where before I got into medical research, I worked in jobs related to my degree, but I never worked um, in a corporate job, right? So I had no understanding of business uh, per se. So the thought was, do I keep continuing moving in this space of academia and medical research, or do I go do something completely different? And I decided to do something completely different and um, do something cultivated to my personal talent and skill, right, and follow my heart, which had something to do with uh, speaking and, and coaching and something like that. I wasn't quite sure what it looked like. How brave, and particularly that you weren't sure what it looked like, because I think sometimes people think, I'll make that step when I'm clear what that would look like. And I think taking that step when you don't know what it would look like is often the step that's the best step to take. Yeah, because the way that I came about it was because having uh, conversations around dementia was so difficult, 
especially with the family members, mm. where their instant response was to pull their family member out of the research project. And anyone who understands research knows that um, retention and the sample is paramount. You need to make sure those numbers are strong and the, and the participants stay in. I went to learn coaching skills and counselling skills. Right. And because, because I was seeing five people a day, on average 25 to 35 people a week, for a space of two years, I practiced those skills every single day. Wow. Yeah, so and I it's became. Not what I normally expect coaching type skills to actually appear. So I think it's fascinating that you were actually uh, saw the need for something like that, went and got that training. And while it might not have been a normal fit or match for what people would think coaching was, you actually could then reapply it to your situation and two years of practice. Wow. Yeah, that's right. Two years of practice, five days a week, 25 to 35 different people a week. For two for two years that's that's what i did and i applied my skill and i got to a point where i was like okay maybe i want to start a, a small business helping people uh with some of their personal issues and so sort of like a bit of a life coaching model yes uh, but very specific to um just certain niches in subject matters like parenthood and, and things like that uh, but then eventually that grew into uh, messaging because i found that i had talent for that then it grew into stage presenting and, uh, once I went to Toastmasters and I discovered that I had a real talent for stage presenting and I, I, I don't like blowing my own horn, but after my Go very for first it. Present- I encourage you. Go <laughs> for it. Blow away. Yeah. And, and, and it's good. I, and I actually feel it's a positive thing to share because sometimes you get lucky and you find exactly what you're good at. And I had never done public speaking before. And I went to Toastmasters, did my icebreaker, which is the first one yes. and I prepared for it. And the people who, uh, saw me and heard me speak thought that I was a professional speaker from from the very first speech that I ever did So from that point onwards, I invested time education money competitive public speaking all these things to really raise my ability What I love about that is some natural talent appeared and it was able to be extended and enhanced because I think sometimes um, when we are wondering, well, what am I good at? We actually overlook our natural talents because there is natural to us as breathing and we don't stop to consider, oh, maybe other people can't do that. So we often uh, discount or diminish things that might be natural talent. And what I'm loving about the story is how you found yourself in a situation with Toastmasters where it could be revealed and not to say it's benchmarking against other people, but it could be revealed how strong that natural Natural talent was compared to the general population but also an opportunity to embrace and take that to another level yeah and I think um, this is what I really wanted to share with your audience members because the question that I get from a lot of my peers especially in their late 20s um, I'm 32 at the moment but you know in my early 30s this is what my peers were always asking of me and they always ask you know Eric you stumbled onto your natural talent you're lucky and fortunate how do I um, discover my natural talent um, because I I just don't know what to do and, and I don't know where to do it and I'm not interested in, in doing business or doing this and doing that and they use that as their frame of reference to, to measure whether or not they should try something, right? Mm. And my response to them is always has always been a one that surprised them because I said to them, I did not stumble upon my natural talent, not really, because I kicked off the process following one key principle that I've abided by. And even till um, most recently, a week ago, did I have a major epiphany by following this principle, had mm-hmm. a major epiphany. I'm on the edge of my seat, Eric. On the edge of my seat, there's a drum roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So whereas most people usually go look for um, what to do, their purpose, their natural talent, or even um, how to position themselves for success, they always look towards what can I do to um, learn from somebody? What can I do to get more experience from somebody? What can I do to get mentored by somebody in order to raise my own personal profile? And when I, when I have enough time where I've raised my personal profile, I've raised my knowledge, I've um, spent more time, you know, traveling or doing this and doing that, then the revelation will come to me. That's what people usually say to right. me. Does that, does that sound um, similar to some of the uh, yeah. strategies that you've heard? It, it, it resonates with my own experience in my early years and also what I've seen from other people. I think there's often the sense of when the realization comes or when the or ideas more fully formed, then I'll take a step because it's like, and sometimes there'd be people who would say something like, if you can dream it, you can realize it. Or there's often a sense that like you need to have a clear goal and go towards it. And I'm not actually a believer of that because I think that actually puts a lot of people in paralysis. Like, well, when I've realized what that vision is, or when I've defined that goal, then I'll be able to make a plan. And I think, what if you took a small step now in a general direction without necessarily knowing where it would take you or where it would land? Yeah, and, and I definitely agree. I, I would say that it's one of those false dichotomies, right? It's like the mindset people versus the hustlers and hardware people. There, there's a context where both will either matter, one will matter more than the other. Exactly. Whenever you come up with something, you'll probably, you're likely right. You know, whatever you, scenario you come up with, for or against one side of the argument. Um, but they're both uh, fundamental. Mm. So this principle, right, is that they always came to me with that sort of explanation, but I always challenged them by saying to them, I actually believe that you should flip it on its head and think about in what ways can you put yourself in subjective adversity in any way, even if it's completely unrelated to um, the situation. So say you're trying to figure out something to do with career. I'm not saying that you have to do something purely career related. I'm saying subjective adversity in any area of your life mm. and you wouldn't believe what insights um, you'll be able to have and what epiphanies you'll be able to have from doing it. Now, Sounds a bit I like mean? we're going to the dark side here, Eric. That's right, that's right. But what do I mean by subjective adversity? Yeah, subjective adversity. This, this, is, this is the key element, right? So being really good at public speaking, a lot of people are afraid of public speaking and being good at public speaking always amazes the majority of people in the world because the majority of people in the world can't do it well because mm. they see it as objectively hard. Yes. And in my life, I have done a lot of things that were objectively hard, such as, um, you know, being five foot six and uh, a certain size, being able to lift really heavy weight. I was really into powerlifting. I, lived close, I lifted close to 200 kilos once in the, in the deadlift. Wow. Um, I competed at... Uh, for the university team in Taekwondo and I could do all the fancy flashy kicks, right? Yes. All these things that were objectively hard. But what I found myself doing was that I continuously sought validation from my peers and kept myself in a safe space by pushing harder in the direction of what was objectively hard for people, but subjectively was not hard for me at all. Right. Right. Because I, I spent so many years doing those flashy kicks and I and I spent so much time lifting the weight, getting it to, to that level. But every time people saw it, I got that validation. And this is this goes against uh, – sorry, this sort of speaks to why um, I ask people to explore more than just their strengths when they're trying to look 
for what they're good at. You know, people go, yeah, what are your strengths? What are you good at? Yes. And, and this is sort of the principle that helps um, you evolve um, beyond just looking at that particular avenue. What is subjectively hard? So tell me, where's some situation where you put yourself in a subjectively, in subjective adversity? Yeah, so at the end of um, 2016, I had a great year in my, in my business, in my micro business, right, small business. I had held two workshops every month at 80% of full capacity um, for the entire year Brilliant. of um, 2016. But at the end of it, I felt that burnout feeling again because it just became another job about raising the next invoice. Right. And, the, and I lost a soul. It just became about uh, making ends meet. So one of the um, big things about why I was in that space is because I thought to myself, how do I compete against the Tony Robbins and the Sam Cawthorns and the Brendan Bouchards who were providing courses on speaking and presentation when I'm just some um, Joe Blow nobody uh, in Melbourne that has no international profile. And what did you decide? And what I decided to do was, okay, what are all these people doing that, um, that uh, what are all these people doing that I'm doing well and that I'm matching with them, but what is it that they're not doing that I could possibly do? And what would actually be subjectively hard for me? So speaking in front of a big audience, not hard for me anymore. I had done it for, yes. in front of hundreds of people and all that. Um, you know, trying to push harder with sales and all that, that had no interest to, with me. And, and that's just using my coaching skills for, for ill, yes. uh, as I like to frame it. But what, <laughs> I, what I realized that would have been subjectively hard for me was what if I presented to an audience that did not give um, two shits about me at all? Mm -hmm. If they didn't care that I was speaking and the thought came to me that I would take a milk crate out into the middle of the city, the CBD of Melbourne, Yes. And stand on top of it and just speak ad hoc, no planning at all, no prepared speech, and just get up on that soapbox and just share exactly what was on my mind to a crowd where 99% of the people either walked past me or thought I was crazy. That's definitely putting yourself out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like what, what would that give me? What would that reveal to me? What, what would that do for my life? What would that do for um, my ability to progress further with this question of what's my purpose? I'm intrigued to hear what came out. So what came out of it was, number one, um, I remember distinctly standing on top of the steps at Federation Square. Mm. And it was the first time I'd done it. And my wife was there. She was holding the camera, um, just filming it for, for my own review. Yes. And when I got up there and I started speaking, there were people sitting in the steps in front of me. They were having a conversation. When I started speaking, they turned away from me. Right. And you can imagine how I felt, right? I was like, oh, you know, they, they didn't want to be bothered by this idiot spruiking or, or speaking about some nonsense. But then what had happened was, after I finished speaking, I went home and I reviewed the tape, I actually saw that those people were actually listening to me. They never right. came up to me afterwards, they never gave me eye contact, but I knew that they were listening because they were no longer conversing with each other, but they were staring off into the distance and they would nod every time I hit um, a really great point. Right. Yeah, so that made me think about how, you know, when we go out into public and we can't shield ourselves from all the negativity and the bad news that comes over the airways on Sky News and, and all that sort of stuff, right? Yes. On CNN and all that. The opposite also must be true, that if people can hear, even in their day-to-day, -day, even for the briefest of moments, a message of hope or inspiration or motivation, of cultivation, of innovation, how would that change the trajectory of their life?
Wow. The light gets through, huh? Yeah. And I started doing um, more of the soapboxing. I did it in front of um, the Melbourne Central um, train turnstiles. I did it at the Emporium at, at um, QV. Uh, sorry, yeah, the Emporium. Sorry, not QV. The Emporium in front of Nest Cafe. And I found that some people did come up to me and they did speak to me about some of the things that I spoke about, which, which sometimes covered, you know, personal growth stuff to um, covering, you know, relationships and things like that. And after they came out and spoke to me, the light bulb went in my head that, hang on, maybe, Eric, what you've been missing in your life is contribution. Look at the feeling that you get when you have someone who engages in a dialogue with you in regards to um, feeling some sort of positivity that came from the gifts of what you had just given. And in this particular context, my verbal gift or my language gift. Interesting, because I could see somebody might stand on the outside and objectively say, but Eric, you were doing lots of giving and contributing in your um, coaching work. Yes, but I think it's one of those things where um, the giving there also had the elements of getting something in return, which is them paying me for my services. Right. That, that, was, that was one of those things, right? And I think that I wouldn't say tarnished, but it put, it, it put that into a certain context. Well, it gave it a commercial arrangement, whereas what, what you were doing here, while there may have been some exchange of value going on and that you were contributing to people and people were letting you know that it made a difference in their life, so you, maybe you were having some social impact, a different value exchange going on, but not commercially motivated. Yeah, that's right, not commercially motivated. And what's interesting about my story, um, which uh, most people uh, find uh, fascinating, was that the genesis of that particular act, jumping on the soapbox, yes. was actually the key defining moment that changed the, the trajectory of my life and my professional life from that particular choice. Had nothing to do with career, right? It was just, it, it, uh, as in it had nothing to do with drumming up more business. It was just more of a personal challenge, even though I was questioning that the question that I was putting out to the universe was, what do I, what do I want to do in my career? Where, do, where am I going to go to make money and make ends meet for my family? It's I decided to do something completely different. It's an interesting thing, that notion of career, because when people say something like, oh, so what will you do when you retire? And I go, I don't understand the question. And they look at me perplexed. Yeah. And it's like, well, retirement suggests that there's this point where there's work, but what we usually understand work or career or job to mean is there was some exchange of time and talent for money. I don't see work now as an exchange of time and talent for money. I see it about getting many things and that it's about what I do with my day, what I can do with my talents, how I can impact people. I'm going to be doing that probably to the last breath that I have on this planet. But yeah. some of that may have a commercial aspect to it, some of it may not. But I think one of the things for me about Self Unlimited is helping people see beyond that, just that sense of I need an income, a job is a way to get money. Oh, maybe some other things I get out of it, but you know, essentially it's about the money. And what I'm loving about your story about going out with the soapboxes, there wasn't a sense of, oh, but it's career management or career planning or it's for a step in my job or my work. I would still say it's in the workscape and I'm using a very broad definition there of work of where could Eric use the things that he knows how to do to have an impact on the people around him and you, we couldn't neatly put that in work or personal life or somewhere else but still it was a way where you have things that you could use that you could... Uh, utilize in the world to have some kind of impact and that it, while it may then have fed back to something that may have a commercial aspect it's fed into other things as well that aren't necessarily commercial yeah what you described about 
um, your reframing of work and perplexing people with your response. I think that understanding exactly what you shared at a personal level, to truly understand that is a step towards the type of freedom that people yearn for when they speak about freedom. Indeed, and, indeed. And personal freedom. Because one of the things I'll often say to people is, so imagine a world, if we did have universal basic income, which took care of the money coming in, well, then what would you like to do with your time and your talent? And, you know, then people are, oh, I'm going to sit on a beach or read books or whatever. And I went, okay, well, there's pretty evidence from people who retire that you might be able to do that for three months, but then there's a point where you might be stifled or bored. So where's the part where you can learn and grow and contribute? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And um, so how that relates to um, the next step in my story that really fascinated people was that this one act of pushing my own limits and putting myself in a very scary um, situation, at least subjectively really scary situation, it became a story that belonged to me, it belonged and became a part of the essence of who I was as a person, it became an essential part of me. And when I started sharing with people this particular story, um, the opportunities for um, career, mentorship, network, all of a sudden started to open up. And this really leads to um, the fundamental answer that I give to my peers and millennials and people uh, looking for purpose is that this idea of personal brand, yes, there is the, uh, the branding aspect that's more marketing related, but there's also this idea of personal brand of what are you doing to make yourself unique? What's your unique selling proposition as a person? What are you doing um, that's inspiring people to want to connect with you? And when I did this particular soapbox act, I was able to connect with um, Liz Volpe, who is the co-founder of uh, Project Gen Z, along with her husband. Yes. And we went to Cambodia um, to the Sunrise Children's Village, which is... Um, founded by Geraldine Cox, an Australian, in fact. Uh, I've seen her on a documentary on TV. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And she runs Sunrise Children's Village. And when I went to Sunrise Children's Village, it further added to this principle that I've been uh, attempting to share in this podcast about adversity and uh, subjective adversity and changing frames of reference, right? Because mm. I, when I went to um, Liz and I share with her my story she gave me the opportunity straight away to be an educator on the trip and that normally doesn't happen normally you'd have to have attended a trip before just as a supporting role and then go into education but because she saw my ability to push myself Indeed. really raise the game she felt um, a sense of uh, trust in my ability and I think that's one of the points that I was just going to highlight, but you did it so well, is that the stories we can tell about what we've done, and you use the word story, but I even mean literally, what stories can you tell about what you've done? That's more important than, you know, here's a list of my achievements, or here's a list of the job titles I've had. That's less meaning to me when I'm looking and trying to understand people, because there's such a richness, as you just mentioned, about that it said something about somebody who was willing to tolerate some uncertainty, to, to step into some bravery, and when I consider people and the kinds of job opportunities or work opportunities or collaboration opportunities that might exist. It's more about that kind of attitude or disposition. Could you step into something and figure it out as you go? Other particular skills like maybe public speaking, that can kind of be taught and mentored, but that kind of do you have a disposition or an instinct to just go try, you know, deal with stuff that's unscripted? Yeah, that's right. And, and people um, don't realize that, Challenge and adversity 
and and even overcoming us uh, overcoming suffering of, of different sorts is actually the um, complete equalizer. It's the all equalizer between human beings because you may differ from another person in terms of experience, in terms of accolades. You may even have a different frame of reference regarding success. But one thing that we're all uh, we're able to understand from another human being, regardless of culture, age, and and um, geolog uh, geographics, is pain, suffering, adversity, overcoming all those type of things, we understand the human condition on a very equal level. And so particularly, one of the things I was just going to say there, sometimes there's a metaphor that I'll use with people, because coming back to your original comment about, you know, there's the rich and the very rich. Sometimes people, if I had been dealt the right set of cards in life, if I'd had the right education and the right money, I might be able to. And I say to people, we all get dealt different cards. It's not what cards you got dealt with. It's what you did with the cards that you were dealt. That's right. That's right. Exactly right. And, and, and I, I definitely am a proponent of that idea. And, and um, you know, as I've shared, I really do believe that maybe putting a focus uh, when you are stuck on the overcoming of challenge and adversity as a means to um, as a means for discovery, as a means for epiphany, as a means for um, connection and growth. Uh, I truly am a champion of that. Mm. And, and that came to fruition when I was asked to go to Cambodia. And when I met the kids at the children's village, you know, a lot of them had suffered, you know, horrific, horrific things when they were younger. You know, part of the reason why I came on the trip and it resonated with me was I heard the story from Liz about a girl uh, uh, nine years old walking to school and she was getting uh, sexually assaulted, raped uh, every single day on her way to school. Wow, wow. And I have a daughter, so I can't help but project my daughter's scenario into that, right? Mm. And when they went to the police, um, they said that they couldn't do anything about it because the rapist was a government official. Wow. So the children's village um, saved her and mm. took her in. And when I went to the children's village, and I've been to orphanages, uh, orphanages before, and one of the things that was extremely revealing, and, and again goes to um, this uh, principle that I'm speaking about, is that when you combine adversity with nurture and support, right? So this is the other part of the recipe, the other essential ingredient in the mm. principle that I'm talking about. One part adversity, one part nurturing and support, where in the orphanages that I've been to in the past, when I spoke to the kids, they were part of the orphanages that were struggling to find their next six months worth of meals and support and funding. Yes. And when I spoke to the kids, when I asked them, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? The limits of their vision were quite clear. They wanted to just be safe. They wanted to have a house. They wanted to just have a job, right, and yes. have fun. When I went to Sunrise Children's Village, which is um, quite well-resourced because Geraldine um, doesn't come from, say, a religious background, like a nun or, or something like that. She comes from an entrepreneurial um, international relations background. Yes. So she knows how to, uh, she understands, like, you know, branding and marketing. So she goes on the fundraising around the world and she does it successfully. Yes. Um, Sunrise Children's Village is quite well-resourced. And when I spoke to these kids who were well-resourced, who had overcome challenge, who were nurtured and supported and given um, the tools that they needed in order to grow, they would say things to me like, I want to go to university overseas and come back and um, rebuild Cambodia. How amazing. I want to compete in boxing in the Olympics. I want to, yeah, I want to compete in tennis on the pro circuit. 
something about and, and they all had these horrific stories but because of the what was that sorry i was just saying something about geraldine and the environment she's created there that it's given them a different reality and a reframed a different possibility for their future that's right that's right and and what's um even more surprising for a lot of people is that Geraldine doesn't stop giving them adversity. Even to be a part of the Project Gen Z um, workshops that um, we went over to do, the students had to take a test and the test was basically an indication that they kept to their word regarding their studies and, and things like that and the test would reveal whether or not they're up to date. And if they passed the test, they were allowed to be part of the program. So, you know, she constantly nurtured this idea of you know, there's no free lunches, especially in a country like Cambodia. Adversity and what you've been through has given you resilience, but when you add it with proper nurture and mentoring and support, magic can happen. Brilliant, brilliant. I think there might be some interesting insights that we could come to um, wrap up because I hear stories, and I may be out of line here because I'm clearly not a millennial. Um, well, <laughs> those who've seen a photograph of me, I'll, I'll put it out there. I'm 50 years of age. And so sometimes I hear people say of the different generations that they might have experienced more adversity or what's going on in society gives them more adversity than another one. And it's often talked about how from a millennial generation, they've got a lot more adversity because whether it's about climate change going on or how uh, the jobs that aren't available anymore or the price of housing and things like that. And so I'm wondering, where does that land then in terms of if they're feeling, well, they're looking to get jobs and or grow and get a career or do work and there's adversity around them. What's your closing thoughts that we might offer? Well, um, my closing thoughts probably fall in the following buckets, right? Number one, um, it's important to remember that the concept is around subjective adversity. Okay. Subjective adversity, not objective necessarily. Of course, objective has its um, power as well, but subjective takes into account the individualistic aspects of, of a person's experience. And if you think about what is subjectively hard, right, um, that becomes extremely, extremely revealing. Um, to, to even give you the, a very simple example, um, recently, I had a same sort of confusion around a certain aspect of my life and I decided to do something that I've always tried to avoid like the play, which was run, running long distance. Mm -hmm. I've always avoided that because objectively, I've always maintained you know, heavy weightlifting as I shared with you, which is very yes. impressive objectively, but subjectively it was the running. And when I started running, um, it became this challenge, this mental challenge. And then what revealed to me after that was when it started raining on a particular run that I was about to begin, I was actually standing outside limbering up and it started raining. And the thought came to me that I have positioned certain things in my life to be absolute truths and things that I can say, uh, absolute truths where I can accept them and avoid them. So what, do I, what did I mean by that? I mean, like, when it's raining, I accepted that it was an absolute truth that it's okay not to run when it's raining. Right. I might, I might be um, very savvy to the point that I'm making excuses when it's just late and I don't want to run, but when it's raining, I accepted that as a fundamental truth that it's okay not to run. But right. then when I actually did it and I went out and ran in the rain, the, the, the rain on my face, the wind, you know, my, my hair product melting into my eyes, when I finished <laughs> it and I actually... And I actually completed the run, right, in the rain. 
the, the freedom in my mind and my body gave myself time to think. And then I asked myself the important questions. I asked myself, what is missing in my life? What is it that I'm not focusing on? That's the time where I'd ask the questions. But if you ask these fundamental questions of yourself, when your mind is cluttered, when you haven't exercised and you're not breathing properly and all those, all those different things, then that voice in your head will give you all the context and the resistance to somehow help you rationalize all the way out of trying to solve the problem of pushing yourself. And I'm imagining with the low capacity for thinking, it's just going to get very superficial thoughts anyway. That's right. But when you push yourself through some sort of subjective adversity and you give yourself that win, um, you'll be amazed about what thoughts can come to you. Then the second thing that I'll probably advise uh, your listeners or suggest to your listeners is go and do something worth talking about. Create your own story. And if you get given the opportunity to do something fun and crazy, out of the ordinary, a little bit thr thrilling, requiring a bit of bravery, just go and do it. Don't say no to any of it. It might even be something as superficial as bungee jumping, right? But you just don't know what will come from the the mere act and decision to choose something out of what you would normally do. And back to our original point, you know, put yourself in a different reality because you don't know what might come out of that reality. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And if you do that, if you go through subjective adversity, if you put yourself in a different reality and create a story for yourself, the third thing I would say is learn to tell that story. That has been an essential part of my growth is that I did all this work and when I was able to tell the story, and I don't mean in a very uh, convoluted or an inauthentic way, I'm, I'm talking about in a sense of, say, for example, you go on holiday, you come back and people ask you about your holiday. The first time you tell it, it's a little bit cluttered. But by the 15th person that you've spoken to about your holiday, it comes to this um, final product where you leave out the stuff that's not very relevant or not very exciting and you learn to summarize exactly your holiday uh, gets, in the best, most consumable way, right? It's quite um, distilled that, to its essence. That's right, that's right. And that's what I'm suggesting people do is that don't be afraid to tell your story and eventually you distill it to an essence that will be quite powerful because when you are able to share your story and you share a story that um, speaks to people, inspires people, and allows them to connect with you and what it means to be human, not on your titles, not the fact that they're CEO and you're just a, an assistant, doesn't matter. When you do the things that are story worthy, things will happen for you and more revelations and epiphanies and opportunities and doors will open for you because that is exactly what happened to me. And that's how I went from, say, uh, in the start of 2018 with a network of only just micro businesses to a year later where I'm networking with um, you know, people like yourself and CEOs and uh, Neville Christie, who is a, a mutual mentor, and, and all these really, really talented people sharing the same journey as me because they saw value from me engaging with them and Indeed. not that I just wanted to take from them. Indeed, and I think you made the point, and, and I'll use this as a way of wrapping up, that where is the uniqueness that you have? And I think the stories can reveal uniqueness without you needing to say, hey, I want to tell you how unique I am. You don't have to be that explicit. There will, it will different elements and threads and richness and layers come out in stories that give all of that uniqueness context and, and a, um, a platform on which to be expressed. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That that uniqueness, being able to share that and, and having the confidence to do so. And I think the confidence to do so does come from a desire to improve yourself. And that can be done 
in any way. It can be books, it can be mentors, it can be physical training. I'm a big proponent of that. Um, you know, uh, being flexible, being strong. All these ways are progressing the, the thing that is you forward, mentally, psychologically, and spiritually. And fundamentally, I would actually say that becoming a better public speaker once you get past the fundamentals and the basics of not umming and ahhing and all that sort of stuff, it actually goes down to how congruent and authentically can you present yourself where the other person understands exactly the essence of who you are. That's mm. what makes a great speaker. It's not necessarily confidence because confidence comes in so many different forms. Look at the difference between statesman confidence like Barack Obama, who is very measured, to a Russell Brand comedian confidence, which is very seductive, loud, and energetic. They're mm. both confident, but so far different on the opposite ends of the spectrum. And, and I think there's, about, an, there's an alignment there of where what's authentic to them, and that's where it comes across. That's right. And I would say that perhaps maybe not um, authenticity per se, and, and I'll, this is a subject matter that may be left to a, a different conversation, but it's something that I'm quite passionate about yes. like, because I believe that most people are authentic all the time, especially when you think about the moments people describe where they're inauthentic, right? Where mm. they thought about something and they did something um, in opposition to what they wanted to do. I actually believe that that is authenticity, right? Because you've made a conscious choice, even with all the thinking, umming and ahhing, you still chose to do it. I've, I feel that authenticity is actually a boundary that holds a lot of people back, that they feel bad about themselves when they do something inauthentic. The way that I like to describe it is congruence. Congruence is, yeah, is nice. an over time thing. You know, you're not like you're not kind because you're kind once. You're kind because you know 80, 95 percent of the time you are kind, and just like any other human, five time five percent of the time you're not. And um, I love that word congruence. Yeah, <laughs> Eric, you have told us some amazingly congruent stories and a variety of stories. So thank you so much for sharing. There's some great insights and tips to take away from that collection. So thank you for your time. No, thank you for having me on and I really enjoyed the conversation. Ah, indeed. And so um, we might actually, you and I have a conversation offline if there's any references that, or things to, that you've written about authenticity or maybe I can even entice you to an article or something about authenticity for our listeners for a later date. Well, definitely keep an eye out. Um, during my journey, I've been you know, involved in a lot of different business partnerships, but I am deciding to make a return to sharing some of uh, the, the knowledge and the evolution of some of the concepts that I've um, created throughout my journey. And that was the epiphany that I was talking about regarding the running and what happened to me um, not more than a, a week ago. I'm going to start probably giving out a little bit more thought leadership around some of these concepts. Brilliant. Well, Self Unlimited looks forward to getting in contact with you and getting some of that information to further share. Thank you. Workscapes are changing everywhere. For more goodness to change your workscape, visit www.beselfunlimited.com and follow us on Twitter at Be Self Unlimited.